Good Friday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know all of you are ready for the weekend to be here. So am I. But even on a Friday evening, I can still be here with my audience and discussing another episode session of Through the Perilous Fight, from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, the six weeks that saved the nation, by Mr. Steve Vogel. You know, last night we uh, talked about the debacle, or should I say the American uh, military's debacle at Bladensburg, Maryland. Well, we are now uh, at this uh, juncture where Washington um, is in in a major state of disarray, not just with leadership on the presidential uh, level in terms of James Madison and his uh, cabinet, most notably uh, cabinet members like uh, Secretary of War uh, John Armstrong. James Monroe, who is a Secretary of State, is out on the battlefield sacrificing whatever is necessary to um, ensure that his country will be safe, even though he knows that the inevitable inevitable is... um, more than likely um, coming in just a short amount of time. Well, I guess the bigger question is, is um, James Madison's wife, uh, who is Dolly Madison, and Dolly Madison loves to throw parties, galas, that bring people together. Historians know that Dolly Madison herself was to was having a dinner arranged at the White House up until mid-afternoon when one of President Madison's manservants named James Smith informs Dolly and the other workers to leave Washington ASAP. In other words, abandon the White House now. Why so? Because the British are coming. Now, whenever I hear that famous saying, the British are coming, I always think of uh, Paul Revere's famous midnight ride where he rides through Lexington and Concord and other nearby towns uh, to alert the people of Massachusetts that the British are coming. And it's true, that was the case. However, there's a flip side to it that Paul Revere's mission... And, and I'll mention this uh, somewhere later on down the road, not in this, um, this book, Through the Perilous Fight, but Paul Revere wasn't the only individual uh, who helped uh, warn the people of uh, Massachusetts during that time in the American Revolution. But his mission was successful because people had more time to mobilize and be prepared to take up arms against the British. We've had our opportunities to show the British what we could muster up on the battlefield. Everybody else blundered, with the exception of Commodore Joshua Barney, who was uh, wounded at uh, Bladensburg. Well, Dolly Madison is warned by a handful of people, not just Mr. James Smith, about leaving as soon as possible, But given that her husband wasn't in Washington, she was more concerned about valuables 
like silver plates, china to crimson red velvet drapes. She was concerned that all these valuables would be taken by the British. Well, I'll just say this. You know, valuables are important, but in a time of emergency, crimson red velvet drapes could be replaced. Of course, not everybody has the luxury of a crimson red velvet drape. That's only afforded by those who are well-to-do. But at the same time, regardless of your status, I think your life as a human being should take greater precedent over silver plates in China to crimson red velvet drapes. Somehow all these items made it on a wagon. And what was the last item that Dolly Madison helped uh, rescue that still stands today in the White House? It was Gilbert Stewart's famous portrait of George Washington. Dolly Madison, however helped coordinate the removal of the portrait by having a group of servants take it down. And of course, when you're in a matter of uh, life and death here, you're not going to be able to gradually take the portrait down. They literally had to um, forcefully remove it from the wall. So I'm going to suspect that, um, that some form of damage was done in order just to save the portrait. Dolly herself had a huge fear that if the British took the portrait of George Washington, that it would be an ultimate prize trophy possession for them. Does everybody make it out alive? Yes, but barely at the nick of time. Matter of fact, uh, Paul Jennings, he is one of um, Madison's, um, or servant of the Madison family. He uh, played a key role in... Um, getting the uh, portrait, this portrait of George Washington uh, taken down. Obviously, the portrait itself has great symbolic meaning. Well, Francis Scott Key, he described the retreat from Bladensburg, Maryland, as one that was humiliating. He had predicted early on from the start of this war that Washington would be captured. It wasn't a matter of if it would be captured, it was a matter of when. After all, Francis Scott Key uh, saw just how poorly um, how poorly Washington um, was left to outsiders in terms of the British. In other words, he knew just how vulnerable the capital was. And with no... Um, fortifications or redoubts or anything um, in place, the city itself was just a flat-out sitting duck. Are there people uh, left in Washington within the military to destroy the Navy Yard? Uh, the answer is yes. The Navy Yard is essential because that's where all of the uh, Navy ships are built. Who will oversee the destruction of the Navy Yard on our side? His name is Captain Thomas Tingey, or Tingey. He was appointed to oversee the building of, of the nation's first Navy Yard in the year 1800, the same year that the capital, the nation's capital, um, relocates to Washington, D.C. 
But on August 24th, 1814, he is left to do the unthinkable, and that was to destroy the Navy Yard. How so? Or should I say, why did he have to do it? In order to prevent the British from capturing the facility. Had the British captured the facility, sure, they probably could have set it on fire, but they also could have um, taken those ships and used them to their advantage. How many uh, troops would enter Washington under the command of Major General Robert Ross? I'll give you a number. It's between 200 and 500. The answer is 200. These men were fusiliers from the 21st Regiment of Foot. And no looting of Washington was to, keep, was to take place. That's interesting. Now we're going to get to the actual burning of Washington. And I want you all as the audience to be prepared to hear what I have to say. Because it is very jaw-dropping. And what I mean by jaw-dropping is that it's horrifying to know that what took place on August 24th, 1814 did happen. When I tell you all the details, you all will truly understand why this incident was the equivalent to a modern-day 9-11, or even let alone to Pearl Harbor on December 7th of 1941. Could Washington, D.C. have been spared? In other words, could the British have chosen to have uh, negotiated with President Madison? Yes, but was President Madison willing to negotiate back? No. Okay. Major General Robert Ross is not interested himself, too. He simply wanted to deliver this message. The public buildings of Washington would burn, but private property would be left alone. So in this case, private property, we're talking about ordinary, everyday people's homes. People who, for one, aren't so much government employees, but their property is not anywhere in uh, connection to the government buildings. Now, the U.S. Capitol building <laughs> in this day of time is referred to as the Palace in the Wilderness. It stood almost alone atop the Capitol Hill. There was no modern-day uh, dome that we know today, especially in 1814. I'll give you a good description of the U.S. Capitol building as to what it would have looked like in 1814. It was comprised of a two-story wooden gangway which crossed a vacant yard and joined two rectangular sandstone wings. The building itself had been under construction for two decades. So in 1800, being the year that Washington becomes the nation's capital, the House, the Senate... The Supreme Court and Library of Congress all met, or should I say convened, in the unfinished 
North Wing building. So think about that. Four, uh, two bot, two, you know, the legislative branch, judiciary, and a separate independent uh, government um, institution, the Library of Congress, all convene in this building. Somehow they managed to make it work. They didn't know any better, but they got by with what was available. In 1807, the South Wing is built to where the House of Representatives have their own separate building to convene. How nice. Because for one, led, for one body of government to have its own building to convene in at this time, that's uh, pretty revolutionary unto itself. Now, when General Robert Ross and the Fusiliers come inside the Capitol building, they actually take a tour of it. They want to see for themselves what our government really is made up of. Once they get the tour, they've decided that now it's time to take matters into their own, ha own hands to, and start uh, beginning to do what's called phase one of, of burning of Washington, and that is with the Capitol building. We're rockets. I, I mentioned from last night's um, podcast about the Congrave rockets that could fire into the air at 200 miles per hour. And their biggest, um, while they had a lot of inaccuracy, their biggest element was um, provoking fear into innocent civilians. But were rockets fired through the roof of the House chamber? Yes. But no results occurred. Why so? Or should I say how? Why is that? Because the roof of the House chamber was covered in sheet iron. Okay, so what are the British going to do in order to succeed here? The British forces take furniture. I'm not just talking an ordinary chair or a couch. They take uh, mahogany desks that belong to members of the House of Representatives... They take tables and chairs. They take all of these pieces of furniture and by forming a pile into the middle of the room. They sprinkle the items with rocket powder and immediately it leads to a full-scale ignition. The heat was so intense that everything else in sight was consumed by the fire. So in just a short in a few short matter of minutes. A, a quiet building that has been abandoned. Our seat of government is up in flames. The North Wing, too, was virtually destroyed, including 3,000 books of congressional belonging. 3,000 books. Now, maybe I shouldn't get ahead of the game here, but I guess I could tell you this now. When the Capitol is rebuilt, who is kind enough to donate a plethora of books to Washington 
and by doing so, the Library of Congress is reborn. That's none other than Thomas Jefferson. After all, Thomas Jefferson has been was known to have said the following, and it's in quotes, I cannot live without books. Thomas Jefferson is an avid reader. What does the government need? It doesn't need library books just for congressmen to read at their own leisure. They need these books um, for uh, a variety of purposes, uh, for, for lawyer uh, matters, for law matters, for um, geographical purposes. They need these books for knowledge enhancement because as time comes, goes along, um, they're going to need to turn to these books for guidance on how to go about getting legislation, future legislation passed, that is. Well, uh, the next part, after the uh, Capitol is burnt, the British go next to the White House. Did British soldiers and sailors take souvenirs from the White House? I believe it or not, they did. One lieutenant made off with President Madison's dress sword. Another soldier took a small portrait of Dolly Madison. And just like how the Capitol building itself got burnt, the British soldiers and sailors gathered furniture and placed it all in a drawing room. Windows got smashed, and the bedding was soaked with lamp oil, which led to the entire premise becoming an inferno. Well, President Madison and Dolly Madison, it takes them a while before they are reconnected, but they are on the run with people around them. But no matter where they go, they are frowned upon by people at places of lodging. So many people are angry at the Madisons because they feel like the Madisons sold, the, sold their country out to England. Matter of fact, Dolly Madison stayed at a place called Rokeby. It was the farmhouse of one of her friends, Matilda Lee Love, who, who truly felt that President Madison had in fact sold the U.S. out to England. So even Dolly's, Madison's close inner circle of friends are beginning to question not only her, but her husband's leadership. And rightfully so. This is not a good time to be in Washington, people. It's not so much, it's not so much that, that these buildings got burnt. That was bad enough. It was the fact that James Madison as a president could have done so much more to have prevented this. It's fair to say that had James Monroe been Secretary of War, none of this would have happened. He would have pestered Madison left and right to have done so much more. He even would have pestered him left and right until he was blue in the face to have changed his attitude on standing armies. Now, once these fires took place, and they've been going on now for a couple of hours, could the fires in Washington have been seen from many miles away? Yes. Light, the light from the fires were as visible as 35 miles northwest of D.C. in Leesburg, Virginia. 
to, the, to 45 miles south being in Fredericksburg, Virginia, to 40 miles northeast being Baltimore, Maryland. So no matter where you were this night, on this night of August 24th, 1814, you could see the light from the fires anywhere from 35 to 45 miles away, regardless of where you were at. Believe me, it was a frightening sight to have seen. It's one thing to see a fire, but when you're seeing, but when you can sense it miles away, that adds a, a greater element to the fear factor. The residents from Federal Hill began to start one who watched all this from Federal Hill began to start wondering if Baltimore would be the next target. Where are Rear Admiral George Coburn and Major General Robert Ross located, especially now that the destruction of Washington has taken place? Both men are having dinner at a Mrs. Souter's boarding house. They are regaling in their mission objective. True or false, were... Did any government buildings get spared from the burning of Washington? True. Only one, and that was the patent office. And all private homes in Washington, including all of Georgetown, got spared from destruction. And this was uh, probably a good blessing for Francis Scott Key and his family as they resided in Georgetown. So... Are the people of Baltimore going to be prepared for what's going to lie at stake? Because Baltimore is going to be the next target. If the burning of Washington was bad enough, there is more stake at Baltim in Baltimore. Because Baltimore, for one, has a bigger population than Washington, D.C. And two, Baltimore is a greater hub for all purposes of commerce activity. If Baltimore falls into the hands of the British, the United States is even in more danger than the burning of the capital because Baltimore, in many ways, Baltimore could be the link that either saves our country or the um, experience of democracy becomes um, virtually non-existent. So... Here's some uh, history on uh, Baltimore. The city was named after Cecil Calvert, who was the second baron of Baltimore. Calvert County in Maryland is in uh, Cecil Calvert's family. After all, his father, Charles Calvert, is the one that establishes Maryland as a um, religious haven for Catholics who had been vigorously persecuted by Protestants in England. Now, the Port of Baltimore becomes established in 1706, primarily for tobacco trade. The port itself had been built around a harbor off, Pataps off the Patapsco River. And by the early 19th century, Baltimore becomes the, the nation's third largest city. What I find interesting here, though, is that it was built around a harbor. I'm wondering if that has any relation now to the inner harbor of Baltimore. The Inner Harbor is, I haven't been back to the Inner Harbor of Baltimore, Maryland in years, but
but that is where um, where many uh, not just prom I wouldn't say so much prominent people, but that's more upscale Baltimore. Let's uh, put it that way. Now, um, what are uh, what is Baltimore known for producing? Flour and tobacco at one point, and because these commodities are high valued, they get shipped to Europe into the West Indies. When they get shipped to Europe, Baltimore gets back in exchange manufactured goods, and when it ships these ships the tobacco and flour to the West Indies, it gets back in return molasses and sugar. Did the British have a blockade, or did the British blockade Baltimore? Yes. Most of Baltimore's trade got dried up, but what probably saved Baltimore, or, or should I say modified Baltimore's well-being, was the practice of privateering. And privateering uh, was a huge uh, trade, or profitable trade in Baltimore, because um, not only were several British ships captured, but the valuables that were from those ships perhaps made up for the uh, for the British blockade that had taken place. And it is safe to say that the British have a strong dislike for Baltimore and its people. Not only did British ships suffer greatly uh, due to acts of privateering, but Baltimore itself was a city that was very vocal um, for being a pro-war advocate. And those who were opposed to the war often became victims of mob violence. How many people live in Baltimore? I'll give you a number. It's between 40 and 45,000. The answer is 41,000 people. Most of these people in Baltimore are comprised of sailors, merchants, ship, ship workers, and laborers. Um, is Baltimore um, a well-defended city? I would say it's far better defended than Washington, D.C. It's well-defended by water. A majority of its land defenses were oriented for an attack from the east. The city, however, was more vulnerable from a land... for a land attack from the southwest being Washington, D.C. So after the burning of Washington had taken place, did the British forces have an opportunity to take Baltimore on two nights, or should I say two days later on August 26th? Yes. Did they capitalize? No. The British leadership was not unified on making a surprise attack due to distance from land and water. But the irony to it is that you already have British forces in Upper Marlboro. However, there's about 30 miles of terrain by road from Bladensburg to Baltimore, and then 50 miles by water from Bladensburg uh, to Baltimore. Major General Robert Ross squandered a huge opportunity he felt that because his men were tired, that they needed to regroup and be uh, rejuvenated to fight another day. 
But the irony to it all was that the people of Baltimore were not even prepared to fight this day. So this would have been a golden opportunity for the British to strike at the heart of the people of Baltimore. You know, you've already destroyed Washington. And when you've destroyed the nation's capital, you need to keep the momentum going. And when you have an opportunity like Baltimore, you better strike now. Because failure to strike has given the people of Baltimore more time to um, bring in militiamen, but to also bring in troops who know that they are going to be fighting for a real cause and they're going to be, served, be enlisted under leadership that actually knows what they're doing. And that leadership I'll be talking about in another uh, podcast, or should I say in the next podcast session. Because uh, from the research I've done, not only when I read the book a few months back, but the research I've done now, I almost have to wonder why weren't why couldn't some of these generals or military figures been at Washington? It's not that they didn't want to be there. They were stationed in other parts of the world. So by the time they got back to the United States, it was too late. It wasn't like they could have just gotten on a helicopter and uh, flown uh, back to the United States. But who's to say that if their presence was there, would Secretary of War John Armstrong have given them all the ammunition that was needed to defeat the British? Probably not. This is where history um, is at its darkest of moments. This is where we have to learn our mistakes. This is where we're going to have to come together and realize what is it going to take to be better prepared now than we were just a few days ago. This is where heroes are going to arise, not just on the battlefield, but on, um, but heroes like Francis Scott Key, John, a American agent of, of war prisoners, John Stuart Skinner, are going to come into play. Believe me, people, there will be those who will rise from the ashes to, um, to do the inevitable by making America great again. And I'm not just talking about creating jobs. I'm talking about making America great again by making us a better military presence in the world. To stand up to the mightiest empire. We're basically going to be seeing a second resurgence, a revival, a military revival. And where else could it be than in Baltimore, the city that is going to save our country and you can probably tell that I'm sounding very passionate about this. I, I am passionate about this, about this because after having read this book and, and knowing the carnage that occurred at Washington, I can't imagine being alive in 1814 in Washington, D.C. and witnessing firsthand the destruction of the Capitol and the White House. I can't imagine being angry at my um, commander-in-chief for letting the American people down. Now, I do know this. Even after the Capitol was burnt, there were many in um, Congress, there were many um, people who wanted the U.S. Capitol to be relocated. 
there were those who wanted it to be returned to Philadelphia, where it was prior to going to D.C. There were those who even suggested Baltimore or Annapolis. And there were those who wanted it as far west as um, Lancaster, P.A., and believe it or not, as far west as Cincinnati, Ohio. Some people truly felt if the capital went further west, it would be more, um, what do you call it, it would be better protected against um, enemy invasions. Yes, you could be as far away from water as possible, but that doesn't guarantee uh, safety either. As a matter of fact, when Thomas Jefferson was governor of Virginia during the American Revolution, he had to learn the hard way in that um, the British did come up, not just the James River, but they made their way inland into um, Richmond. They made it even past the fall line. They went... They chased Thomas Jefferson and in in his cabinet in the legislature as far west as Monticello. And had it not been for a fella named Jack Jewett, who was the Paul Revere of the South, Thomas Jefferson would have been captured, and he probably would have been hung by the British. Jack Jewett uh, saved Thomas Jefferson's life. So... The bottom line is, is that while, yes, all of these suggestions on relocating the capital were great ideas, especially to places west, well west, like Lancaster, PA, and Cincinnati, Ohio, no matter how far west you could relocate in a time of emergency like this, there's no, there are no 100% guarantees that you would have still been safe from the inevitable. As tragic as what happened on August 24th, 1814, we are going to learn, not just in the next podcast session, but in, in, a couple, in other podcast sessions, just how uh, stronger we become as a country. Not all, life can't be rosy, and life can't always be a cakewalk. There are trials in our, li- in our lifetimes. Our country has seen plenty of trials, but this was a major trial. If, if what hadn't taken place at Baltimore didn't happen, I'm not sure our country would even be here today. We really were on the ropes as a nation. I look forward to sharing more about what I've uh, just uh, shared with you all in the next podcast session. Stay tuned for more to come, and uh, have a good evening and a great upcoming weekend as well. Take care.